Hi, JJ here with The Art of Value. Welcome. Well, Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting was last weekend and they provide lots of video. There's six hours of video from the Q&A. It's basically a long Q&A. And so I pulled out some highlights. I'm going to provide some highlights here, um, some reaction to the what Warren and Charlie are actually saying. So let's get straight into it, see what they've got to say this year. So this one's about Elon Musk overestimating himself. Let's see what Warren and Charlie have to say. Given the recent success of his ventures, such as Tesla, SpaceX and Starlink. I'm curious to know if you still hold the view that Elon Musk overestimate himself. Thank you so much. He's referring to a previous comment by Charlie Munger who said that Elon Musk overestimated himself, but he did say that sometimes uh, he's done well by doing that. Let's see what he, they have to say this time about this. Well, yes, I, I think over uh, Elon Musk overestimates himself, but he has a he is very talented, so he's he's overestimating somebody who doesn't need to overestimate to be very talented. There's a Bill Maher program, about a week old, maybe two weeks old, but but he interviews Elon, and Elon does a terrific job toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with Bill Maher, who... I, who it, it, it's worth watching. And, uh, I have to watch that interview. I haven't seen that yet. I've seen the beginning of it, but I must watch the whole thing. Some pretty kind words I've got to say for Elon Musk here. Definitely that he's very talented. Obviously, the things he's achieved. Let's see what else he's got to say. Elon is a, he's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And I would say that, you know, he mm. might score over 170. But, uh, but he, you know, it's he, he dreams about things and, and they... His dreams have got a foundation. He would not have achieved what he has in life if he hadn't tried for unreasonably extreme objectives. So they're saying he dreams big and he reaches those goals sometimes, or all of the, a lot of the time that he has his name. He likes taking on the impossible job and doing it. We're different. Warren and, I, Warren and I are looking for the easy job that yeah. we can identify. Yeah. Yeah, if we can do it playing tic-tac-toe, we'll do it, you know. I mean, <laughs> now, they've talked about uh, when funding investments jumping over, what is that, three-inch hurdles or something? Low hurdles, where Elon Musk is different, entrepreneur trying to do extreme things, things that have never been done before, so obviously pretty different. And Elon said this about them too, that he'd find it really boring doing what they do and just investing, running money, and they don't want to do what Elon does either. <laughs> we have a wholly different way of going about it. The whole way, uh, yeah. But we don't want to compete with Elon in, in a lot of things. I mean, it, you know, it, we don't want that much failure. Yeah. <laughs> they got a laugh there about we don't want that much failure, and it seemed like an insult. But I don't think that is an insult because what he means by that is if you're an entrepreneur trying to do things that are impossible, sometimes you will fail, and that's kind of part of the American entrepreneurial spirit, isn't it? Failing is almost. Uh, you know, it's experience. It's almost a good thing because failure is on the way to success, which other some other countries don't have. And you could argue that that's why. My big reason that America has been so successful in a capitalist sense because of these entrepreneurs that have dared to do things that others haven't done and invent things. I think that's what Munger means by that. Yeah, and and it takes over your life, and I mean, in a way that it, it just doesn't fit us, but. But, you know, there are going to be, well, there have been important things done by Elon already. And, and uh, uh, 
it, it requires fanaticism isn't the word. Yeah, it is the word. <laughs> <laughs> well, it isn't quite the word. Again, I think that's what he means by that. It's a joke and it seems like a bit of an insult, but uh, Elon's pretty fanatic about what he does, for, you know, rockets for SpaceX, getting that rocket to land, failure, failure and failure until success. So you have to be a kind of fanatic there. I agree with that. It's, it's a dedication to solving the impossible and, and, and every now and then they'll do it. And, and, uh, but it would be torturous to Mayor Charlie. And uh, uh, I, I, just, I like the way I'm living and, and uh, I wouldn't enjoy being in his, but he wouldn't enjoy being in my shoes either. Yeah, that's a good point. They wouldn't, they wouldn't enjoy what each other does. They do different things. They've both done very well, but totally different ways of seeing things and, take, and doing things. By the way, if you're watching on YouTube and getting value out of this video so far, please hit that like button to help to spread it to more people. Really appreciate that. Thanks. Okay, this one's about Apple and car companies and electric cars in particular. Let's see what they have to say. Let's see what the question is. Looking at the global trends, it increasingly does seem that zero emission vehicles may have finally reached the cusp of mass adoption. Oh, yeah. Do you Definitely. see any opportunities in this space, either in specific vehicle manufacturers or in related technologies? The BYD in China. Well, I would say that, that Charlie and I were long have felt that the auto industry is just too tough. You know, the Ford Motor Company, I mean, Henry Ford uh, looked like he owned the world uh, with the Model T, and, then, and he brought down the price dramatically. He took up wages dramatically. Twenty years later, that uh, they were losing money, and they had a guy with a gun in his pocket, I think Harry Bennett, you know, that was, was running the Ford Motor Company. It was on its way to the junk heap when the whiskers came in and, and Henry Ford II, Hank the Deuce, as they called him. But it's just a business where you've got a lot of worldwide competitors. They're not going to go away. And look like, it looks like there are winners at any given time, but it doesn't get you a permanent place. Although, as I mentioned, I would say Ferrari is in a special place. Okay, he's talking about the, the car business globally there, how it's very intensely competitive. Over the last decades, it's been competitive. People argue that the, the EV industry will be, the EV sector will be different because there's full self-driving and there'll be recurring payments you know, for software and so forth. But I think it, all, all cars are going to be electric in, in due course, probably sooner than people think. But anyway, he's talking about the intensity of competition and how it changes over time. And it has been like that. At Ford there, Henry Ford, and we could think about Elon Musk. I was thinking about that when he was talking about Henry Ford. Is there going to be one company or somebody with a sustainable competitive advantage? That's what reading between the lines he's talking about there because there really hasn't been in the cars. Ferrari is the exception there. As he implied, it's a limited number of cars. They have pricing power. They have such demand and pricing power capturing customers because it's such a strong brand. But most car companies aren't like that. Arguably, Tesla is different. And what he didn't mention here is that they own BYD in China, but BYD is also a battery maker first and does many other things. But of course, they're selling a huge amount of electric cars in China, uh, matching Tesla, being competitive with Tesla. It's, it's not a business where we find it fascinating to be in. We like our dealership operation. 
but I don't think I can tell you what the auto industry will look at ten, look like five or ten years from now. I do think that you're right that that that, uh, that you know there's a you will see a change in the vehicles, but you won't see anybody that owns the market because they changed the vehicle. So he says he doesn't know what it's going to look like in five or ten years, and he has said before he does think he knows what Apple's going to look like in five or ten years. It doesn't say beyond that, but that's the difference in sector there. That's why they like Apple so much. It's kind of got consumer capture there and a moat as he sees it, but he doesn't see the car businesses like that, which is interesting because he didn't. It doesn't mention Tesla there, but that's obviously on people's minds, especially talking about EVs. And they went with BYD in China many years ago, over a decade ago, and that's done well for them. Well, the electric vehicles coming big time, and that's a very interesting development. Sure is. The moment it's imposing huge capital costs and huge risks, and I don't like huge capital costs and huge risks. <laughs> and we're subsidizing it in the United States, and we're actually doing it, try putting in a pro-labor time. I mean, it, it is subject to politics like you can't believe, too. But but it's it's going to be with us. We're not going to quit, quit driving cars. And, and American mm-hmm. public has a love affair with them. And I think I know where Apple's going to be in five or ten years, and I don't okay. know what the car companies are going to be in five or ten years. And I may be wrong. There he says uh, he thinks he knows where it's going to be in 10 years, Apple, but not the car companies. And again, you know, they've got low margins. If you look at Tesla, the margins are going down. Apple's a high margin business. So, you know, it comes back to that thing about what's your, what are your best ideas, I think. So he doesn't hate the car industry, but he definitely seems to have problems with it. During an episode of Investing the Templeton Way podcast, Professor Damodaran, who he respects almost as much as Warren and Charlie, mentioned that he is not comfortable with positions becoming a large part of his portfolio. For example, when they reach 25 to 35 percent, he mentioned that Apple is now 35 percent of Berkshire's portfolio and thinks that that is near a danger zone. Wonders if Warren and Charlie can comment. I'd like to make one comment first, but Charlie will come up with... I think he's out of his mind. Yeah, I knew that. I think he's out of his mind. Talking about the professor at NYU, of course, his videos, he does videos on YouTube quite a lot. He's a channel, teaches at NYU, of course, so he's very well known as a valuer, teaches valuation. So it's him against Warren and Charlie here. Warren explains about the Apple stake. Apple is not 35% of, of Berkshire's portfolio. Berkshire's portfolio includes the railroad, the energy business, granimals, you name it, seize candy. They're all businesses. And, uh, you know, the, the, the good thing about Apple is that we, we can go up. They buy in their stock, and instead of owning 5.6%, you know, they get down to, they got about 15 billion, 700 and some million shares outstanding. They get down to 15 and a quarter billion without us doing anything. We got 6%. So we can't own more than 100% of the BNSF. We can't own more than 100% of Granimals or C's Candy. And it'd be nice. We'd love to own 200%, but that just isn't doable. But they're all the same. They're good businesses. And to think that our criterion, our criteria for Apple is different than the other businesses we own. It just happens to be a better business than any we own. And Wow. Those are important words there saying it's a better business apple's a better business than anything else they own and they own some very good businesses 
He's kind of implying here that they'd kind of like to own 100% of Apple if they could. They own 100% of other businesses. So what he's saying is that any great business that they identify, they'd like to own it as much of it as possible or a big chunk of it. So he's not apologizing for having a big stake in Apple here. Let's see what else he has to say. We put a fair amount of money in it, but we haven't got more money in it than we've got in the railroad. And Apple is a better business. Our railroad is a very good business, but it's not remotely as good as Apple's business. But, uh, uh, Apple, mm. you know, has a position with consumers where they're paying, you know, maybe they pay fifteen hundred bucks or whatever it may be for a phone, and these same people pay thirty-five thousand dollars for having a second car. And if they had to give up a second car or give up their iPhone, they'd give up their second car. I mean, it's- I think that's true. That's a good statement there. That if people had have a second car. If we had to give up our phones, our smartphones and iPhone these days, it's really hard to do without it. They've come, become extensions of us. And increasingly in in the AI age, as we move into AI, it's becoming more and more like that, where we're kind of extensions of our brains. Well, that's the way that I think of it anyway. You know, there's that, that phobia of, is it called mobiphobia, where if you lose your phone, if you put it down even for a few minutes, uh, you kind of feel lost without it. I think that's what he... He's recognizing there it's kind of partly psychology or how important Apple's become to us buying phones and having phones, using them literally hours and hours a day, where as a second car would we could do without. It's an extraordinary product. We don't have anything like that that we own 100% of, but we're very, very, very happy to have 5.6 or whatever it may be percent, and we're delighted every tenth of a percent that goes up. It's like adding $100 million to our earnings. I mean, our share of the earnings. We went up slightly last year, and I made a mistake a couple of years ago, and I sold some shares. I did notice that, that they sold some Apple shares, but he said it was a mistake to sell, even though they have a huge stake in Apple. So that's interesting. (laughs) He makes mistakes. Buffett makes mistakes. He said selling some Apple shares was a mistake. Certain reasons why... uh, gains were useful to take that year from a tax standpoint but having heard having heard me say that it was a dumb decision <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, Charlie you've already given your comment about it but but we do not have 35 percent of Berkshire's portfolio Berkshire's portfolio is the funds we have to work with and we want to own good businesses and we also want to have plenty of liquidity and beyond that you know, the sky's the limit or, or our mistakes, who knows what the bottom is. <laughs> so he makes the point there that even though in their stock portfolio of businesses, Apple is seems big, but Berkshire owns so many subsidiaries, so many companies, 100% of companies. So when you take it from that perspective, looking at all of Berkshire, uh, Apple isn't as big as it seems in the stock portfolio, but it is a big stake. It is a big position in their portfolio. It has become that way. And I think that they don't they don't sell. They're not known for selling when or rebalancing. They just keep it if it's going well. Charlie, do you want to add anything to your earlier comment? <laughs> well I think one of the inane things that's taught in modern university education is that a vast diversification is absolutely mandatory in investing in common stocks. Okay. He's talking about diversification. So that, 
They, Charlie Munger's known for being incredibly concentrated in his personal holdings. As he says, a lot of talk about be diversified, be diversified. And that kind of goes if you don't know analysis, if you don't know what you're doing. Buffett said to own the S&P 500 index if you... If you're uh, not keen on analysis or you don't know what you're doing, but Amanga says that if you do know what you're doing, if you spend the time and research the company, know the company, then diversification is not really a great thing. Let's see what he has to say. That is an insane idea. An insane. It's not that easy to have a vast plethora of good opportunities that are easily identified. And if you've only got three, I'd rather be in my best ideas instead of my worst. Okay, so he says, yeah, there aren't that many good ideas. And Buffett said this too. They haven't had that many good ideas through their whole long career, the best ones anyway. And so when you find a good idea, a good company, put a lot in it. That's his philosophy. Now, some people can't tell their best ideas from their worst. And in the act mm-hmm. of deciding that an investment already is good, they, they get to thinking it's better than it is. I think we make fewer mistakes like that than other people. So it's about identifying the good companies. They're good at that. And uh, you talk about swinging big, waiting for that fat pitch. And when it comes along, invest a lot in it. Like Apple was a $30 billion investment when they when they added to that. And people didn't know why at the time, but it's worked out very well so far. We're not so smart, but we kind of know where the edge of our smartness is. That is a very important part of practical intelligence and a lot of people who are geniuses on IQ tests think they're a lot smarter than they are and what they are is dangerous know the edge of your own ability pretty well you should ignore most of the notions of our experts about what I call diversification of portfolios you got this round the episode you might like to see next this Warren Buffett interview here or this Charlie Munger interview here if you're watching on YouTube I'll also put the links in the description for people on other platforms and thanks for watching or listening and I'll see you next time